We are in the middle, second week of our series, Creatures of Habit. And what we have said is that 2016, probably for many of us, is a time where we start new habits and we end old habits. I know my wife and I, just this afternoon, we were talking about our meal planning. That was one of our habits that we wanted to start for 2016, going over the meals that we have for this week as we go grocery shopping. We're also trying to track every expense. So we have this big Google Doc that we share, and we're trying to start and be a little more disciplined about that. And probably for many of you, eating a little healthier as the new year comes. And so it's a a great time for many of us to have a fresh start, to uh, reassess, to consider uh, the habits that we are a part of. What we know is that habits are seeds. The little investments that we make, the small things that we do, become big things that bear fruit in our lives. God made us this way. We are the created. He is the creator. That's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's a thing thing. It is this idea of how God has created us. We are all creatures of habit. Habits are extremely powerful. There's a a little book called How Habits uh, by Charles Duhigg, and he states in there that on average, as we go throughout our day, about 40% of our actions are actually habits. That seems a little high, but I began to think, even kind of in my own life, that I hop in the car often, I don't even process, and I'm at my final destination. I was going to a movie this week, and as I was grabbing my coat, the next thing I did was grab my backpack. Because every morning, I just grab my backpack, throw it on. So, for many of us, we have habits that just cause good or bad fruit in our life. They have consequences. That the more that we do this in our life, what we bear. Our habits uh, can be terrific friends or terrible enemies. We can be blessed or we can be bitten by our habits. Pastor Tony opened last week and he talked about this irrefutable law that a man reaps what he sows. That every day we are sowing something. We're either sowing to please our flesh or we're sowing to please the spirit. And the habits that we partake in are a part of are producing something in us. Bad eating habits will produce a destruction of our health. A habit of pornography or lustful passions will break intimacy within a relationship or a marriage. A habit of backbiting or angry outburst will destroy connection that we have with our deepest friendships. But a habit of following the Spirit in the life that God desires will produce eternal life. It's not just life in eternity, but it's life for eternity. It's this joyful, abundant, filled life that pleasing habits of the Spirit produce. And so as we kind of can dive in, we are asking the question, Are we fully leveraging this irrefutable law? 
Are we fully leveraging the fact that the good things we do on a daily basis can produce a joyful, abundant life? The story of my life is determined by the substance of my days. The story of your life is determined by the substance of your days. Our habits produce good or evil within our lives. The habit we're going to talk about this evening is the habit of reading our Bible. I realize that as we jump in and talk about the Word of God, we're making some assumptions. We're making the assumption that we believe God's Word is inherent and infallible. We have a statement of faith that we hold as a church and is shared with a fellowship of churches that says this. The Bible is the Word of God, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, verbally inspired in all parts, and therefore wholly without error, as originally given of God. If you are someone who is just checking out Jesus, exploring what we believe, we welcome your questions and your curiosity. But as we talk about the Word of God, we're going in this assumption that we believe God has written what He has desired for us, and we have access to hear from Him. There was a survey done uh, a few years ago, the beginning of 2012, and, and their hope with this survey was to find, on average, how often those who were churchgoers, those who were active in church, read their Bible. There was a statistic that said 90% of those that they had surveyed said they wanted to honor God fully with their lives. But when asked, those that uh, regularly uh, spent time in God's word outside of maybe a scripture reading in a service, it was less than 20%. Less than one in five who on a regular basis were committed to daily scripture reading within their Bible. If we were to poll ourselves this evening, I wonder if we would be satisfied with the results. I know probably for many of you, this is even a New Year's resolution that we consider. How can we get more into the Word of God? Well, this, this evening, I want to highlight one passage in Scripture, Psalm 119, 9 through 16, where it talks about the importance, the value, in the outcome of engaging with the Word of God. And so you can turn this on page 496, or you can follow along on the screen. Psalm 196 is the longest chapter in Scripture. There's 176 verses. It's organized like a poem. There's 22 stanzas, which are eight verses long. And in it, we're just going to look at the second stanza. It's based upon the Hebrew alphabet. And so in this book, it's an amazing chapter where uh, many, many synonyms of the Word of God is used throughout. And so we're going to unpack and we're going to ask this text three questions and one suggestion as it relates to how we should engage with the Word of God. Go ahead and follow along with me, starting in verse 9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord, 
Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statues as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. So I believe the first question that it has for us as the manner in which we approach the word of God is found in verse 10 and 12. It says here, the psalmist is that he seeks God with all of his heart. He asks God to not let him stray from his commands. He's praising God for giving him his decrees. We see just even in these few verses here that the psalmist's desire is to know God personally. The psalmist associates knowing God's commands and decrees with knowing the character of God. He values the word of God because it leads to an understanding of who God is. So I believe the first question that it asks of us is this. Is the word of God leading me to his heart or to be smart? The psalmist is seeking with all of his heart to know the heart of God. He knows that this deep knowledge will lead to this deep reverence of the character of God. I think the question that I ask myself is, how often do I engage with the Bible to be smart? I think maybe at times some of us maybe approach the word of God in a manner like we want to participate on the American Bible Challenge. I know that it's not still going. I think it lasted three seasons with Jeff Foxworthy. But at times we can want to dissect the very difficult passages. And those are good and those are healthy. But we ignore the very basic, well-understood commands of Scripture. Or we want to study the Bible as a way to get into a debate and uh, approach other people with this nugget of knowledge or this truth that we came by. I know for me, there's this temptation of Scripture that I would love to share something new that no one knew as I approach Scripture. But the Word of God and our time in it should lead us to understand the character of God. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, here we see uh, the Apostle Paul talking to one of his disciples, Timothy. And Timothy had the privilege to have grown up in a Christian household with a, his grandma and his mother. And, he, and here Paul is challenging Timothy. He says, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. Through faith in Christ Jesus, all scriptures God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That scripture is given for the purpose to make us wise, to point us to a person. The scripture is all about Jesus. Jesus actually confronted the Pharisees in John chapter 5 because they studied the scripture, but they missed the point. They missed the fact that the scriptures pointed to the personhood of Jesus. They were all about him. 
I should want to study the scripture and come away with an understanding of who Jesus is. The Bible is clear in what it states that each one of us is born with this disease called sin. And the Bible says that in it we are separated and estranged from a perfect and holy God. And that the only cure for this sin is found in the personhood of Jesus. But he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through the scriptures, we are wise in terms of our salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. Verse 16 states that all scripture is God-breathed. The, kind of, the same word that's used as we talk about creation being breathed into existence. God is revealing himself through the pages of scripture. Many times we draw conclusions about God based upon our feelings or our emotions or our experiences. But how often are we allowing the word of God to frame our understanding of who God is. It's in scripture that I get to know the heart of God. It's in scripture that I get to know his character, that he is merciful, graceful, available, unparalleled, protective, caring, righteous, loving, compassionate, forgiving, empowering, discerning, holy, cleansing, restoring, comforting, delivering, teaching, training, purifying, freeing, liberating, trustworthy, proven, historical, infallible, reputable, inspiring, creative, adequate, pure, active, and alive. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Chuck Swindoll is an author and a pastor, and he writes in his book, Growing deep in the Christian life, I am more convinced than ever that life's major pursuit is not knowing yourself, but knowing God. As a matter of fact, unless God is the major pursuit of our lives, all other pursuits are dead-end streets. Including trying to know ourselves, they won't work, they won't satisfy, they won't rest, they won't result in fulfillment. Scriptures are the main way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. In it, we find the knowledge of him, which leads us to the fulfillment of our life, our deepest longings. The only pursuit that can satisfy this pursuit of knowing him. I believe that there is a second question that we pose of ourselves as we approach scripture. And that's found in verse 9 and 11. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's two ways to state the goal of the human life. One can be stated positively and the other can be stated negatively. The positive way would be to glorify God in everything that I do. The negative would be not to sin. And here it says that this knowledge of the word of God should lead us to an understanding of not sinning against him. That glorifying God and sinning are mutually exclusive. We can't do them both. 
that if our desire is to please him and honor him with our life, then we must eradicate sin in our life. And the word of God is what helps us to do that. I believe the question that it asks of us is, is the word of God merely informing or constantly transforming me? The goal of all spiritual disciplines is to grow in our love of God and our love of others. That's the end result. If it isn't doing that, we're sowing to please the flesh. That spiritual disciplines have been given by God so that we may eradicate sin in our life. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of John Ortberg. And uh, in it, he tells just a story. He's changed the name of a man from a church that he met as he was pastoring. And I debated about whether to tell you the story or to read it, but uh, John is a very articulate writer, and I felt like I would miss some of it if I didn't choose to read it. And the story goes like this. Hank, as we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, he had a cruel edge to it, coming at someone's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news in oceans of happiness. He would always find a cloud when others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head. So he worked hard to make sure that everyone else stayed humble. He had a ministry of cranial downsizing. His native tongue was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. A deacon in the church asked him one day, Hank, are you happy? Hank paused, started to reflect on it without smiling, said, yeah. The deacon responded, well, Hank, tell your face that. You can imagine that conversation in the church. Hank's joylessness produced unintended joy for others at times. There was a period of time where Hank's primary complaints centered around the music of the church, that it was too loud. And so he would tell the staff, the deacons, the ushers, and eventually innocent visitors that came to the church. He would complain about the loudness of the music. And so they pulled Hank aside and they had a meeting and they thought everything was squared away. And a few weeks later, a secretary buzzed John on the intercom to say that an agent from OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, was here to see him. So once John figured out that they sent a federal agent to check the decibel levels that had been compared to that of an airport and rock concert, they soon discovered that Hank was the one that had filed the complaint. Sometimes Hank's joylessness ended in comedy like that, but more often it produced sadness. His children did not know him. His son had a wonderful story about how he met his wife at a dance, but he never told his father because Hank did not approve of dancing. Hank could not effectively love his wife 
or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor, a casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigment differed from that of his own. Whatever capacity he may have had for joy, wonder, or gratitude a trophy. He critiqued and judged and complained, and his soul got a little smaller every year. Hank was not changing. He was a cranky young guy, and he turned into a cranky old man. But even more troubling was that the lack of change in Hank did not surprise anyone. It was as if everyone simply expected that his soul would remain withered year after year, decade after decade. No one seemed bothered by his condition. It was not an anomaly within the church that caused head-scratching bewilderment. No church consultants were called in. No emergency meetings were held to, to probe the strange case of Hank. And yet Hank followed the general church guidelines, and remained non-transformed. The church had some expectations. They expected that he'd affirm certain religious beliefs, that he'd attend services, read his Bible, support the church financially, pray regularly, and avoid certain sins. But they didn't expect that he would progressively become more and more like Jesus if Jesus were in Hank's place. They didn't assume that each year they'd find him a more compassionate, joyful, gracious, winsome personality. They didn't anticipate that he'd become a source of delight. They weren't surprised by it either. When I think of the story of Hank, I often ask that of myself. I often ask that of people beside me? Do we have the expectation that as we spend time together and as we spend time in God's word that I will constantly be transformed, that I will be made new, that sin will become eradicated? Success is not measured by checkmarking the passages I read every day. Success, rather, is behavior transformation. It's not just learning about God and having correct doctrine or coming to church or listening to a ton of sermons or podcasts or memorizing books of the Bible. Success is spiritual transformation. And I firmly believe that for those of us that want to be spiritually transformed, it cannot happen without being deeply entrenched in the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. The Bible is not simply a book of information, it's a book of transformation. The Bible is alive and active. It cuts to our hearts If we allow it, God's word is not simply given for head knowledge, but for heart health. God desires that through our time in the word, we would learn to be healthy. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, we see this metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses to speak of the Word of God. In verse 26, he says, Be washed by the cleansing of God's Word. The Bible is to life as washing is to clothes. The Bible is there to help us purify, to remove the stain of sin. I don't know how many of you have had uh, the pleasure of washing your clothes by hand, but my wife and I lived in South Africa for a period of time, and I remember the first time having the opportunity to wash my clothes by hand. It was a nightmare. Uh, I had a bucket, and I put cold water because that was all I had with soap, and I'm there scrubbing my shirts, and literally I think every shirt took like five or ten minutes, and I just could not get these stains out of my clothes. I got a little smart and I found someone on our base that we stayed who had a washing machine and I paid her to wash my clothes afterwards. But what I realized was the work and difficulty that goes into cleaning clothes. That as we approach scripture, we should have the same mindset. That the Lord is taking away false beliefs, false ideas, different random personal thoughts, fears as I approach Scripture that God is making them white as snow. For transformation, I must approach my time in the Word prayerfully. I must be open to the possibility that God is choosing to speak to me. I must approach it humbly. I must understand that I am the created, that He is the Creator, that I look to Him for wisdom. I must approach it repentantly. Must the idea of when I look and am corrected that I submit and ask God for forgiveness, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I must approach it obediently. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves, James says, but do what it says. A few years ago uh, at the Norton campus, our Bath campus has done it well. We took a spiritual life survey. If some of you went through it, I thank you. It was like 30 or 45 minutes long. Uh, But in it, this survey was done by the Willow Creek Association. They compiled all these surveys, and they put a book out. It was called Move, What 1,000 Churches Reveal About Spiritual Growth. And what they said from their findings was, Reading and reflecting on Scripture is far and away the most effective catalyst for a person to move closer to Christ. They said if a church could do anything, that the one thing that a church must focus on is to help people grow in their relationship with Christ would be to get them immersed in God's Word. I believe that there's a third question here that we find in Psalm 119. It's found in verse 14 and 16. I rejoice in following your statues as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. The psalmist rejoices and delights in his time in the word of God. What brings you joy? I could talk all day with you till you were blue in the face if you 
let me about the latest Cleveland Cavaliers rumors, right? What's happening with Timothy Moskov. I love the Cavaliers. I'm enjoying, my wife and I are watching Downton Abbey now, right? There's different television shows. Don't ruin it for me. We're only on season two, okay? I'm going hunting for the first time tomorrow. I know some of us have great passions and hobbies, What brings you joy? Does the word of God bring you joy? Is it your pleasure? I believe the question that it poses here is, is the word of God my pleasure and my treasure? We all know the burning house illustration. What would we take out if we had to value something? I often think about around the world There are many people who would give anything for this. The word of God translated in their native tongue. That they don't have the opportunity, maybe they're fortunate to have a book of the Bible translated. But they value and treasure this so much. And for us, we have multiple copies of it. Collects dust on our shelf or is an app on our phone that's rarely opened is the word of god my pleasure is the word of god my treasure we know that satan's desire is to steal kill and destroy satan wants us to go on ever elusive treasure hunts for joy and meaning in this life but the bible helps us to take captive the enemy It helps us to recognize Satan's indoctrination and misleading information. In it, we find truth. In it, we find this idea of our deepest longings, our joy, and our pleasure. Thus far, we've talked about three questions that the text pose as it relates to the Word of God. I want to give us one suggestion that I think It gives us as it relates to how we should engage with the word of God. And that's found in verse 15. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Meditation helps me get through the Bible, not just through the Bible. Meditation helps get the Bible through me, not just through the Bible. Many Christians listen again and again to this desire that they should read their Bible. Yet one in five do. And maybe for some of us, this has been a a New Year's resolution or we try new tactics to try and value or understand or have a plan to proceed as it relates to the Word of God. But for some of us, maybe it's just difficult. Or maybe it's pure drudgery. Maybe we haven't made the time to allow God to speak to us. Maybe we approach the word of God and we're cold. There's a Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Watson. And he says, the reason we come away so cold from reading the word of God is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. Meditation as a Christian discipline has 
largely been forgotten by the modern evangelical world. When we think of meditation, right, we think of a bald man in a saffron robe, right? We think of this idea of emptying our minds. But meditation means to consider, to speak aloud, to tell, and to think deeply about, to muse on. And so meditation is something that we have been encouraged to do. Many, many times the Bible in the Old Testament refers to this idea of meditating on the Word of God. One could say that meditation is to the Word of God as digestion is to food. The studies have been done that if we were just to swallow our food, that we couldn't receive its full nutritional benefit unless we actually chew it. That understanding and musing on and considering the Word of God and its implications has significant impact on our spiritual growth. The Word of God is our daily bread. It's our substance. How well are you eating? Do you have a snack diet? Are you feasting on the Word of God? I think a a few practical suggestions when I think of meditation is to consider a passage or a small portion of Scripture. Having a plan is important. And being able to go through it systematically in some fashion, having some idea of wanting to work your way through the Bible is very important. But I know me personally... I can go through in a routine. And I find the greatest benefit when I walk through the Bible is to either make observations, to ask questions of the text, to sometimes answer questions from a a study meditation standpoint. And so as we go through the plans that we have, I always think an hour later, maybe hours later, Would I be able to recite anything of which I've read? Would I be able to tell you the context of what I've read? I believe that meditation can help us in that. Choosing a small percentage portion of what we read to think deeply on. I've tried a few weeks ago, I read a a blog uh, that suggested just reading time and time again a book of the Bible. And I've loved it for the last month or so. I've just been reading First Peter over and over again. And I'm one where I, I love to change up. I, I sometimes maybe uh, get bored in doing things a certain way, so I'm always doing different things. And so this has just been a healthy change of pace of rhythm. And I, I can now see First Peter differently. I know in different chapters what it talks about. It's just continually meditating on his word. And then the last thing uh, is memorization is a way to permanently meditate on God's word. After 24 hours, statistically it says we remember 5% of what we hear, 15% of what you read, 35% of what you study, 57% of what you see and hear, but you can remember 100% of what you memorize. Now, I know probably what many of you are thinking 
is, isn't memorization for young children, right? They, they can do it so much easier than I could. But I can guarantee that if I offered you a large sum of money, say $100, you could come back next week with a boatload of Scripture memorized, right? What is our incentive? What value do we give? Psalm 19.10 says that the Word of God is more desirable than gold. My grace group, this past Monday, as we were meeting and discussing Tony's sermon, we decided that we wanted to memorize those verses. We thought that they were impactful and we should ingrain them in our mind a little bit. And it was so fun to kind of do that process together and journey with each other. Because now I can see and think differently this week because of seeking to memorize Scripture. I can say, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Those who sow to please the flesh will reap destruction. Whosoever sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not do, become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Scripture memory can be a powerful tool to ingrain God's word in our heart. It can help us fight temptation. It can give us strength and endurance through difficult times. The Barberton campus has provided uh, for you to journey along in this series a devotional. And in the back of the devotional is an appendix. And in there, if you so choose, maybe as your grace group, to consider memorizing a scripture passage every week for 50 weeks. So there's 50 significant, memorable verses in there. Maybe it's something that you choose to do as a family. Maybe it's uh, around the dinner table. I, I think of times in my own life when I've just pulled flashcards out of my pocket and every few moments just trying to memorize. You can, even with the Uversion app, you can uh, take a snazzy picture and save it in your phone, in your camera. There's many, many ways that you can carry Scripture around with you. As we engage in the Word of God, May it lead us to his heart. May it constantly be transforming it. May God's word become more and more each day our pleasure and our treasure. May we seek not to be okay with just getting through the Bible, but allowing it to get through us.